continue to relieve her her pain and her distress. Comfort her by your gospel. And Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight as we dig into your word once again and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Amen. All right, we're on 1 Peter chapter 3. Last time we looked at humbly following in Christ's steps. And it concluded with a a lot of gospel message and how we follow Christ, even in suffering, even if that's what God's called us to. Now he's got some instruction for us, for uh, husbands, wives. Uh, Last time the instruction we had was for all believers, foreigners and exiles, also everyone to submit to authority and slaves. Now he's going to be more uh, within the household for a bit. I titled this section, Win Over Without Words. So Proverbs 24, verse 3 says, With wisdom a house is built, with understanding it is established. Peter knows that riches and strength cannot make for a strong household. What often happens in a wealthy household where husband and wife are divided? You can't fix it with wealth or other things. It it won't help. Or property. In fact, you'll even probably have just as much arguing about money, right? Let's read 1 Peter 3, 1-3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And also verse 3, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. So Peter isn't telling Christians they should avoid speaking God's word to their husbands, right? He's not saying don't tell them God's word. However, actions can sometimes speak louder than words. Can you briefly list some methods which non-Christian women will Try to win over their husbands to their side. Because Peter says you'll you'll win them over to really the side of Christ. How does how do some non Christian women try to win over the, the will of their husbands? Non Christian? Yeah. Burn their toast. Burn their toast. Threaten threaten their dinner or <laughs> so make life difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the way the sinful mind operates, right? If if you want someone to do what you want, you threaten or you manipulate. Uh, by manipulating, maybe you're not threatening, but you're threatening to withhold something, right? So you can certainly win someone, someone over if they're a spouse, and you're going to say, well, if you're not going to do this for me, then I'm not going to do this for you. I wonder what happened. I wonder what was exactly what was said between Eve and Adam with the apple. Adam went ahead and ate it anyway. He objected at all. And he said, well, hey, take a bite. I'm not making dinner tonight. <laughs> Don't know. Well, didn't he just basically do it because he was just such an eater anyways? Well, as far as Adam, he probably thought he was missing out by that point. Because yeah. she's, she's going to have knowledge like, God, I don't want to miss out on that. But you can see, uh, even in the curse of sin for Adam and Eve, God says, your desire will be for your husband. And he will lord it over you. 
And the word for desire there in Genesis 3 is actually the same word in Genesis 4. When Cain is being warned, sin desires to have you. It's a controlling desire. Uh, so wives are going to desire to be in charge, and husbands are going to be ruthless and rule over them. Uh, that's the not the way that God says it should be, but that's what happens when you got sin, when you don't have people following God's plan. Yeah, so some methods, non-Christian women will try to win over their husbands. Really, they all are summarized, I think, with manipulation or threats, sometimes deceit. Let's contrast that with the approach, that approach with how Peter instructs wives to win over their husbands, to listen to God's word. So how does Peter say they should win over their husbands? Sort of bring them, their husbands to God. But how? Behavior. Yeah. By good, kind, considerate, respectful, loving behavior, not by manipulating behavior. So he says, if any of them do not believe, so he's talking about unbelieving husbands, they're not going to understand love and grace, the way that God has given it to us, or how to love their wives, that they may be won over by the behavior of their wives. Can you give some examples how this could be done today in order to win over maybe a close family member who doesn't believe the word? I like the ESV how it says they may be won, over, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Yeah. And maybe you're not going to win them by, in the sense, bringing them to faith, but you're going to give them, you know, you're going to put down all their guards, and they're going to be willing to suddenly listen to the word. And then God will, by the power of that word, yeah, that, that battle has been won without saying a word. That's a good way to translate it. How, how can that be done? Uh, and let's put it in the context, maybe it's not just wives. What if there's someone that's close to you in your life, and they don't believe God's word? What, what are some ways you can win them over without words? Same thing, your behavior. Yeah. How might this approach to witnessing the faith also be used to spur on a fellow believer who needs to grow in the word? So maybe not just an unbeliever, but how do you win someone over who's just really immature or weak in faith? Looking for some concrete thoughts, examples. So the, the husband, he's, he's not a non-Christian, but maybe he just, he doesn't want to go to church on certain days, and he doesn't want to regularly take time in the evening for anything but drinking his beer and watching his shows. What can the, the wife do? Entice him with a potluck. <laughs> Gee, I don't know how the TV got broken. <laughs> hey, you want lunch? There's potluck at church today. <laughs> so she could resort to threats and manipulation, or bribes. I guess it would be the potluck. Sure, that 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 can work. Right. So does that does that really strengthen a, a weak believer that well yeah I'm not anti-Christian but that's my wife's thing to go to church. Yeah. 
Okay, so Jerry's got a positive example of that. It, it does work. I've seen that too, where one spouse, not always necessarily the wife, but one spouse is active in worship and the other spouse just doesn't seem to care. Quite often, sadly, it is the head of the household, the, the husband, who doesn't come to worship with his wife. Uh, but you see that change. You know, I've witnessed that throughout my ministry that just by continually every week the wife bringing all of her kids, sometimes the husband would come, eventually he starts to see the, the value in it, not just for his kids, but his own life. So it can be done. Or not just going to church, just taking regular time for the, the Word of God. Um, the husband may say, well, I'm not going to take time for that, but the wife will take time with her children. And he will see it. He will be won over. Okay, any other thoughts there? Pastor, I think that we need to remember if we're just using our actions that it might take a long time. It's not going to be instantaneous. Yeah. I think as humans, and especially today's day and age, we want an immediate result. Um, Quick fix. Right. It could be years of it that eventually the husband sees something that his wife has that he doesn't, and then he realizes, I need that too. Um, process. Yeah. And yes, sometimes it can happen overnight, especially in a, a new relationship where two people are dating or something, but quite often it, it is a, a long, patient process of witnessing. Yep. Uh, so that they see your character not just in one instance, but your true character, even in the difficult times. Uh, so how do you handle stress? How do you handle disease, death, the difficult days? Good point. Good thing to keep in mind, so we don't want to disparage or say Peter's Peter's approach doesn't work. Well, it, it does. But Peter doesn't make any promises they'll be won over overnight. Okay, uh, next section eight titled True Beauty. True beauty can be hard to accurately identify on the basis of appearances. In recent years, major entertainment companies like Disney have recognized this and started to produce movies in which the princess is admired for more than just her appearance. You know, you see those old Disney classics, and it's like, there's Snow White or Sleeping Beauty, and there's, there's not much dimension to the princess other than the fact that she's a beautiful princess. And therefore, she's valuable because of that. And, you know, what's, what's the evil person look like? They're often, like, wrinkly and evil or over... Pointy nose. Pointy nose or... Yeah. So the... The princesses are always the beautiful ones, and the, the bad guys or the villain ladies are always the, the ugly ones. So, And re recent many movie villains are not always the most ugly characters. So Disney has started to mature, I think, in that aspect that, oh, appearances aren't everything. But beauty isn't just in the eye of the beholder. Objective beauty does exist. So by that I mean... People say, oh, that looks beautiful, that looks beautiful. No, there is an object of, you have to say with absolute truth, this is what is beautiful. And that's hard for us to grasp because we've been conditioned, uh, not just by Disney, but just by culture and the world around us. There is true objective beauty. God created this world to be beautiful. Think about when he saw the whole creation, he said, this is good. Uh, that meant the beauty of his wonders of his creation, his people, his creatures, Nonetheless, it's cursed by sin. So as a result, true beauty is lost and clouded by sin. So Peter's going to help kind of break through that, help us to see true beauty. 
Scripture makes it clear that appearances can be deceiving. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So if true beauty is only appearance, you'd have to say the devil's beautiful, right? Or like the proverb says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. So the proverb is acknowledging they're, they're a woman that the world will consider beautiful, but they're kind of like a, a pig with a gold ring in its snout if they don't have discretion. Also, if you look at Isaiah 3.16, it talks about the, the decorations, the braided hair, the, the outstretched haughty necks, and the appearance of the woman. They're called beautiful, but Isaiah is clearly saying they're not really beautiful. Can you define what makes something truly beautiful? Don't just say inwardly. That's, I think that's her actions. comes out from the part. Okay. The actions count. So what makes someone beautiful is not just that they exist, it's what do they exist for? Selflessness. Do they love and serve yeah. others? Or are they just self-centered? Because obviously that that's not beautiful. That's not good. Serve others. Okay, so true beauty, we're saying, is your actions, your attitude, and you're actually not invested in just yourself. So, so would, would we say someone dying on a cross is a beautiful sight? Visually, no. I mean, from the world's standpoint, no. Yeah. Like really that movie, right. Passion of the Christ, everybody just, oh, it was just a terrible thing. Oh, that blood, blah, blah, blah. But the real beauty of it was why he did it and what the end result was. So we're kind of getting to what we said, actions, attitude, make something beautiful. And yes, there is objective appearance of beauty, but it's ruined by sin. So we can't really discern or distinguish what truly is beautiful. How about this for definition? True beauty is what God considers good. Yeah, he would know. He's the one that made it. So if someone is godly, there's true beauty. If someone is serving God and belongs to God, there is true beauty. If someone uh, is, let's go to the music example, right? If someone is making music and they're praising God and they have Down syndrome and the best they can do is blurt out an out-of-pitch thing and go offbeat on the instrument, is that, is that beautiful music? And I'm not just being subjective. It's to God's sight it's beautiful, and therefore, if God considers it beautiful, that is what we should define as beautiful. God knows the heart. He looks at the heart for the beauty yeah. of that person. So I'm trying to get, as Peter's going to point us that way too, is shouldn't we consider as God's people beautiful what God considers beautiful and ugly what God considers ugly? And therefore, there's objective beauty because it's all defined on how does God view this? It will be beautiful. Yeah. Someone else told me that um, kind or what's oh yeah, ugliness is ruined by kindness, and <laughs> that was interesting because it's the opposite of of you know beauty is ruined by sin. Like so, there could be a person you might think oh they're kind of ugly, but if that person is really kind all the time and loving. It kind of ruins their ugliness, and you start to see them as beautiful. That's even the beauty comes from. Right. <laughs> yep. All right, let's read 1 Peter 3, 3 to 6. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, 
such as an elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So notice Peter's pointing beauty as God's vision. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. So can you explain how scripture has always put a higher inherent value on women than even the most radical and progressive of women's rights advocates today? <laughs> how has scripture always put a higher value on women than even today's most progressive women's rights advocates? Women's rights advocates, they, it's all selfishness. It's all self stuff. It, it doesn't promote women being kind, submissive, or anything like that. It's just, hey, you have a right. You do what's good for you. Sure. It's, you know, and what you feel you should do, and blah, 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 blah. Is it really beautiful if someone is saying, it's my body, therefore I can take a child's life? Is that beautiful? Yeah. And is it ever beautiful if someone is, as Bill's getting it, is basically inherently selfish and encouraged to be selfish? Whereas scripture says, women have value, but it's not from outer beauty, which yes, not every woman's right advocates will get into, but still, don't the, the very same people that um, practice women's rights advocates, don't they praise the beautiful celebrities and how they are and how they're in charge and look up to them, and the world praises them as beautiful outwardly, or talented outwardly, but has no concern for their heart, or their own inherent attitude towards life and towards God. Yet why does the world so easily place so much value on outward appearances? Still today, you know what young women are taught, right? It's Here's what makes you really special. If you have this makeup, or if you have this dress, or if you have this hairstyle, or if you have these clothes, or if you are a part of this group. Just look on social media, right? They have those filters that automatically fix everybody's face. Even teenagers use that. And they're, they're thinking that this will make people really desire me. Isn't that sad? That that's the world's... tells that's what makes them valuable? It's our Sure, it always has been. You, it's Whether it was back in the day where women wore the French corsets and were really constrained, or whether it was the 1950s and you were supposed to wear a skirt, it was always presentation that mattered and what gave value. I think if you would focus on anything else, like uh, your heart and the faith you have, there's a different discussion that people don't want to have. So like, um, if you would focus on somebody's faith life, that makes them beautiful. Then we have to talk about faith in media or whatever. It's just easier to talk about how somebody looks. Right. And they're they're often in the media praised for their performance or their abilities, but never praised for being faithful to their spouse or praised for being an honest person. Sometimes, yeah, you'll see them criticize, like, oh, this person's hard to work with on the movie set because they're arrogant. 
we recognize this general truth that something else matters, uh, but it's not put on the forefront. Right. Like, how do you adorn yourself with, you know, submissiveness and kindness and a gentle, quiet spirit? I've always wondered, like, what exactly is a gentle and quiet spirit? <laughs> like, it's such an <coughs> Well, Peter says it's an unfading, and actually, <laughs> if if I remember correctly, this is the same word for unfading that he used to describe our inheritance. Remember, it's an unfading inheritance in chapter one. Here he's saying, well, you have an unfading beauty. So this is something that will not ever go away. So how do you adorn yourself with that? It's What are you portraying to the world is what you value and what makes you different or special. It's that you possess this type of spirit. So it's like, you know, these things are supposed to be obvious to other people. Like you adorn yourself with them. It should be seen by everyone around you that you have these good qualities. Right. So, you know, if you're going to wear something on your neck as a necklace, it's going to be this. How might you use this section to help a young woman who's facing great peer pressure to dress in ways that she might not feel comfortable? Or even if she does feel comfortable, really is not going to get her the attention or the beauty that she really needs. I'm assuming it's a Christian young woman that you know. Yeah, so this is a good place to turn to when you have a, a niece, a nephew, a granddaughter, a friend who's a young Christian woman, and she thinks that by wearing you know certain clothing she'll get the attention she wants, or that her friends will like her if she can just get you know this or that hairstyle or adornment. This is a good place to turn to, and just expound on it with them. You know, what does it mean by a inner beauty, and what does it mean by God's set? What does God value? That makes you beautiful. And why does Peter say your your beauty, your adornment shouldn't come from outward things? Does that mean you shouldn't wear that? Or does that mean how are you going to view that and wear that? Right? Good place to turn to. Yeah, and I know it, it makes you feel uncomfortable because like, well, how do I explain that? Because they've spent their whole life hearing the opposite. But don't forget that there are young women that need this, really do need this, and they need a Christian mentor. There's some of the younger kids that wear the shorts, so shorts, and then the other kids walk behind them thinking, well, they think they're wearing them, then they go after their mom or their parents and say, well, why can't I wear stuff like that? Right. Too, then that's just as bad as wearing all this stuff that they're talking with the jewelry about. Right. So they'll, they'll see it all around them. This is the way the world operates. And you have to help them to see, well, what does God say is good? What is true beauty? And that, that's going to take time. It's going to take loving them. You know, the world will shame them for not dressing that way or shame them for dressing that way. You get to say, you get to dress in a way that makes you comfortable and adorn yourself with true inner beauty and let that shine through. Uh, don't forget just how much pressure there is for young people 
always has been, but especially today with social media, to dress and act in a certain way that really isn't beautiful in God's sight and that you get to be the one to let them know it's okay not to do that. It's okay to, in fact, not only okay, it's good uh, to follow this direction. And even though, as Peter says, you'll be a stranger in the world if you do it, uh, don't be afraid to be a stranger. You are, You have an unfading beauty then. Okay, agree or disagree. Peter is saying that women shouldn't ever have any outward adornment or fancy jewelry, etc. Is that what he's saying? No. no. And he doesn't say that. He just says that's not where your beauty should come from. So, yeah, if, if that's all you have, Peter's saying you're shallow. He's not saying that's bad to have, in the sense. Certainly you would have had <clears throat> lots of Greek women in the... Asia Minor area that Peter was writing to that had jewelry and wore it. He's not saying take all that off. He's saying that's not what makes you valuable, right? So you will have churches like, uh, for example, the Seventh-day Adventists will say it's wrong to you know, pierce your ears. It's wrong to wear jewelry. Even I think even rings they say are wrong to wear. But Peter doesn't say that. That would be going beyond Scripture and making a law and missing the point. Uh, the point Peter makes here is not... Uh, don't wear jewelry. The point is, have an inner beauty and make that what really makes you valuable. Um, Peter gets into the woman of the past. You notice that? He says, this is how the woman of the past who put their hope in God, so Christian women used to adorn themselves this way. Can we list some of those women? Do you have any that come to your mind when you think of Scripture? He obviously alludes to Genesis and he talks about Sarah, right? So obviously that didn't mean Sarah was perfect. She had her her faults, but she also was beautiful, described as very beautiful in her old age, not just from outward beauty, but was beautiful all around. I would think of the story of Ruth. Sure, Ruth, a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, She put her hope in God and she was beautifully found to be beautiful by Boaz inwardly, not just outwardly, as they formed that friendship. Esther. Esther, yeah. She was selected because of her outward beauty to be you know, in the harem of the king, and yet in humility she put her whole people first in front of herself, risked her life, and recognized, God put me here for a purpose. So that was a, an inner beauty. Certainly we could identify lots of other women of the past, uh, but as Peter says that, how can a Christian today emulate women of the past? He's telling Christians to emulate them. They made themselves adorned with beauty, with the inner beauty, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, that's how they did it. Peter says, that's how women today should do it. How do they do it? Okay, it involves your attitude towards others. Have a Christ-like attitude interested in others. I think like what Ryan said before, it's really easy to just look at outward appearance, but it's really hard to like struggle with these abstract concepts and really think about how to do it. <laughs> yeah. So mature, grow in faith. Meditate on the word. Look at what it says, that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, kindness, 
patience, peace, self-control. This is not just for women, this is for men too. Uh, that's the inner beauty. I think if you're in the word a lot, that that does start to like spill out of you. Yeah. Funny so how we keep getting back to that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just about every lesson plan it just gets to that back to that point, being in the word. There's another uh, apostle who speaks the way that Peter does here about adorning yourself. It's Paul. He talks about taking off the old self and clothing yourself, putting on the new self uh, to be like God. So we, we do have this picture of, as a Christian. When we wake up in the morning, we're dressed in the, the righteousness of Christ. We have a new self that we're putting on each day, and we're getting rid of that, that old self. So, yeah, it's kind of a an abstract thing, but Peter puts it in a concrete imagery of dressing yourself, right? So keep that in mind. Um, on the side note here I have, submit to your husbands. Is this just a cultural adaptation which Peter's urging women of his day, or is it something which applies to Christian women today, this idea of submitting to your husband? Some people will say, well, Peter was writing to a culture and a time where that was the practice, so they were supposed to follow that in their time. Or is this something that applies to all women or all wives today? It hasn't changed a bit. Okay, so you can see from the Old Testament when you're wicked, you have God against you. His wrath is against you. But if you're good, He is with you. Yeah, so culture doesn't change between all the way. He's talking about Sarah, right? So if if you're saying Peter's only talking about ancient Greek in Asia Minor, then why does he say Sarah, who was in a different place at a different time, two thousand years ago, in a different culture, very different culture from Greek? And Sarah is the example that these Greek women are to emulate. So you have Old and New Testament, that whole span that Peter's applying this to. Why would we say our culture is any special or different, that somehow it doesn't apply to our time? So, yeah, I pointed that out. It's a, it's a timeless uh, beauty that he's talking about as well. So this unfading beauty, was it beautiful for Sarah to do that, but it's not beautiful for women today to do that? Peter says it's an unfading beauty, that quiet and gentle spirit. Also, I have a, a study, it's a very brief, we won't have time today, but if you're interested, I put the gender and the role of men and women. If you want to look that up and you're just listening to the podcast, I'm just going to briefly list through that. So regarding the idea there are two genders, just start there, right? Because there's confusion on what makes us beautiful there. Look at Genesis 1, look at Genesis 2. He made them male and female. Uh, the two become one. Regarding the idea that there's a marriage between one man and one woman, Go to Matthew 19. You know, Jesus affirmed marriage. He said he made them male and female. At the beginning, the two become one flesh. Uh, regarding our status as heirs of heaven, I know men and women are inter- interdependent. You can look not only here in Peter, but look at chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter says, uh, your wives are co-heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And that's something that was unseen in the ancient world. We'll look at that in a little bit. And then also 1 Corinthians 11 and Galatians 3, uh, that there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. Your status as man and woman is no different before God. Equally fallen sinners, but equally redeemed. And regarding head and helper, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11, where it says the head of every woman is man, the head of every man is Christ. So that headship helper role was established by the order of creation, 1 Timothy 2.13. Uh, so that's to be applied for all believers. It's not because of the fall into sin. It was there even before the fall into sin. And regarding the role of men and women in the church, 
look at 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14, you'll see directions given there reflecting that, that head and helper role in the church. And finally, as Peter says here, for marriage, you can also look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. So this is not just the culture of Asia Minor. We want to see this as a continual, consistent picture throughout Scripture. Um, that's a whole study in itself. If you guys want to dig into that, we've got time at the end. But I want to make sure we cover that since we've brought the topic up here. How about we go to the next page? Questions, comments up to this point? I don't know how we're going to finish in time, but let's see what we can do. Yeah. Maybe a question. When um, the Israelites fought with other nations and won through God, they were allowed to take the plunder. So when you're talking about adorning yourself, they were allowed to take everything sure. at certain times, not yeah. sometimes, and keep it or give it to God in the temple or whatever, but also keep it. So they were allowed, and the men as well as the women wore. And here, when they come out of Egypt, they gave many of their jewelries to form the golden calf even. So it was common in ancient Israel that they would have had decorative adornment. Yeah. The problem was just, you know, like any gift of God, it, it can be abused or it can be become a false idol, which it often does, yeah. So, yep, that's good to point out that we, we see examples of that and know... You're definitely commanding what God does not command if you start forbidding hairstyles. And then, then you get focused on work righteousness because it's so easy to do that, right? Oh, I don't wear earrings. I must be a good Christian. Peter's point isn't don't wear earrings. It was, what's your heart? I think when you put everything before God, then you're in trouble no matter what it is. If you watch TV and that's the first thing. Right. You can't go to church because you have to watch a football game. Then I then so I think that you just put God first and then everything else afterwards. So much is our, our misguided priorities as we try to make our own way and establish our own Eden without God. So easy for us to slip into like being really judgmental too. Like if you see someone that you don't think is dressed appropriately, or, right? Or they obviously really enjoy jewelry and makeup and stuff. Like it's easy for us to start judging. It is. Because we're so focused on outward appearances that becomes the matter instead of, oh, maybe that person that likes to dress up and wear jewelry is also very beautiful on the inside and they serve others and they're, they're selfless in all their deeds. Do we look at that like we should? Value that. Let's go one step further in today's age. Instead of wearing a bunch of jewelry, we paint our bodies up with tattoos, which is permanent. You can't take it off when you go to shower or something. You know, it's easy to judge people then, like, because, you know, there's, like, really, like, people who are beautiful on the inside who also have tattoos, so. And since since tattoos are permanent. That really makes it kind of You can definitely get off track, because since tattoos are permanent, what if the person came to faith after their tattoos, and suddenly they have a whole new attitude towards life? Or what if they had a tattoo in faith, and it's a Christian tattoo? So it's just so easy to misjudge someone by outward things. But, but that really throws a monkey on the ranch when you're talking about outward adornment. Uh-huh. <laughs> but like I say, this is the judgmental thing, too. Right. Yep, so we don't want to take Peter out of context here. He's not saying, remove the person among you who wears jewelry. He's saying, <laughs> make sure that's not what you value, right? Yeah. 
I remember when I was a lot younger, I was always raised for the motorcycle people, the gangs are bad, they're ignorant, and all this other stuff. And when I was living in Nevada, I, I knew a group of motorcycles, and these people were the smartest people. I mean, they all had college degrees and everything, but they still wore the jackets and everything. I'm just like, wow. Somebody told me a lie when I was growing up. <laughs> yep, appearances can be deceiving. All right, considerate husbands. So we, we have to keep going here. Peter doesn't just single out the wives. How about this? Treat your wife like a queen, and she will treat you like a king. What's wrong with that statement? Well, one, it doesn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bill says, I tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What would we say is, is wrong with that statement? I think the statement is conditional. Right. So if a husband and wife are like, oh, I better be good to them, so they're good to me, it's like a contract, like a business arrangement, rather than what marriage should be, which is I'm going to be loving despite anything else and do my part, not because they've deserved it, but because I love them. So definitely a bad statement. Certainly it's something that might bring good results in a civil marriage where someone is being kind and they're mutually kind to one another, but it doesn't have gospel motivation. Yeah. This is the This attitude is the, the bottom of the run treatment. I'm gonna treat them well like a vending machine, so I'll get something out of them, right? Instead of the, the, the higher level of the love of God for them and for me. Yeah. Let's look at first Peter three seven. Peter does talk about treating wives well and he, he mentions several reasons why husbands should treat their wives well. Verse 7 here. Husbands, in the same way, so he just gave a direction for the wives. You know, he said, okay, husbands, you, what about you? In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So we can identify at least three far better reasons that Peter gives us for husbands to be considerate towards their wives. Let's, uh, let's list each of the three reasons Peter gives and discuss what it means. So what's one of the reasons Peter gives us? So why should you be considerate with your wives' husbands? Reason number one he lists. Okay, he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, I have a footnote or Bible note that says it, it's the weaker partner just um, with just sheer physical strength. Sure, and Peter's not talking absolutes, but generally speaking, don't we have to say men have test testosterone and that's why this whole debate over transgenderism is an issue because men go into women's sports and what are they going to do? They're going to win. Some people will say, oh, this means weaker because they're emotionally weaker or intellectually weaker. But 
the, the term here is just weaker vessel, actually. So it's talking about their physical being. Generally speaking, wouldn't we, wouldn't we have to agree that God has given men more strength? And also, culturally speaking, women also were in a position where they were dependent on men at this time, too. So if, if a woman got married, all of her inheritance would go to her husband, not to her. It would go towards the man in the culture. A uh, woman couldn't participate in politics. Uh, for a long time in the Roman Empire, they weren't even allowed to testify uh, before a valid testimony in court. So they had, didn't have as many rights either. But I think what Peter's mostly getting at here is not their societal position. He's getting at their, their weaker vessels. So don't you see men more often than women abusing their wives? Uh, when it says in Genesis 3, he will lord it over you, men don't lord it over their wives by manipulating them. They lord it over them by physically domineering over them, uh, financially domineering over them, in every aspect of their life trying to lord it over them. So does that make sense? Um, that's often how most people will take this. And that, that footnote is at the CSB or uh, EHV? Okay, so Concordia Self-Study points that out. Uh, the weaker vessel here is similar to what Paul says in that we are jars of clay. You know, we are just these fragile vessels. Um, not to say that, you know, women are these delicate, that if you, you know, push them the wrong way, they'll shatter or something. But compared to men, they are not as physically strong. And quite often that leads to society treating them as weaker in other ways too. Okay, so that's one reason. Don't you want to be considerate rather than be domineering with your strength or your position? What's the other reason Peter gives? So one is compassion, I would say, right? Like, hey, just because you're able to throw your weight around doesn't mean you should. What's the second reason? So be considerate, treat them as the, live with them considerately as the weaker partner, but also, why else should you be considerate? I like in the ESV, it says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Okay. Which is similar connotation to considerate, but it's, you know, don't be a unthinking brute as you interact with your spouse. Yeah, this this isn't so hard. They're co-heirs. So do women have a do women have any sort of inferior position to men that that there's this head helper role that God's established? Are they inferior in any way? Peter says they're co-heirs, and I, I put a column left-hand column note there that would have stood out in the Roman Empire. Women were not typically considered heirs in the Roman Empire, in the Greek culture of the Roman Empire. And this idea that a Christian woman has a share in the inheritance, this unfading, undying inheritance, along with the men, was something that you didn't often find in their culture. So isn't that a good reason to value women, to say that God values them and says they're, they're equal to you in this inheritance and they're going to take share with you in the glories of heaven? Why would you treat them any less than yourself when God hasn't? Well, because you're 
when you when you get married, you become one. Sure, as so Peter says, so you, that's why you're a co-heir, or another reason why you're a co-heir. Well, that would that would be the you're united right so you're, you're one flesh in marriage but also they're, they're co-heirs just through faith on their own right we don't want to slip into the mormon teaching that in order for the woman to be saved they have to be under a man they're co-heirs independent of the the husband they're co-heirs of the same gift so it does not put them according to god to say they're right here men don't treat them like they're like they're second class uh, just because uh, you're you're thinking that Somehow you're better than them. Isn't that a far more nobler reason to treat the woman with respect than treat her like a queen and she'll treat you like a king? It's God has treated her like a queen. God has said she's an heir of eternal life. God says she's going to be part of the royal priesthood along with you. What's the third reason? So far we have uh, compassion. We have God's love for her. In God's treatment of her, what's the final third reason? That your prayers may not be hindered. The third one's a warning. So Peter urges them first, be compassionate and considerate. Consider what God has done for her. And the third one is, watch out. It's a warning, isn't it? It's law. So Peter gives three reasons. And that's still a better reason than treat her good, she'll, she'll treat you good. It's if you don't treat her good, don't expect God to respect you and what you have done. Don't expect God to hear your prayers, husbands, if you won't even love your own wives. Does that mean that uh, husbands have to earn their way to, to God's prayer? Oh, if I'm good to my wife, then, then God will answer my prayer. That's not why God answers prayer, right? No, but that seems like the most basic, like, Right. <laughs> if you can't even do that, then, you know, how much faith is there in you? Right. So Peter's just said she's an heir with you. We don't earn salvation, right? He's made it clear that our status is an inheritance. That's been emphasized throughout his letter. So how, how does now this picture of not being heard when you pray come in? Well, it's you, you disqualify yourself. You, by your action, demonstrate you're worse than an unbeliever if you can't love your own spouse. So it's not so much that you earn the right to be heard if you're nice to your spouse. It's rather you earn the right or you lose the, the gift of God answering your prayers or the privilege of approaching his throne if you can't even approach your, your spouse considerately. Think about what Jesus says you know, in regard to forgiveness, right? Matthew 18, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. We say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive as we forgive our sins. Uh, those who sin against us. If we cannot share God's love, should we expect to have access to his love? Right? So that's a warning reason. And doesn't that tell you that God takes pretty seriously husbands who are not considerate to their wives? Uh, that God doesn't just overlook, well, men will be men. Uh, I got instruction for women, but men, you get a free pass. No, he says, no, men, don't think you get a free pass. Uh, don't be like the unbelieving people around you and be inconsiderate with your wife because don't expect me to shower you with my grace if that's what, the way, what you're going to respond to it. Or, men, don't forget to recognize they're elevated just as you are as co-heirs of salvation. Or, men, aren't you going to be considerate as God was considerate with you? Questions, comments on, on the section for men? Or husbands, I should say. 
So God's instructions are to live in harmony. So far we've looked at how marriage is to live in harmony. And when you follow this, uh, the wife is saying, husband, I'm not going to manipulate you. I respect you. You can be in charge. And the husband is saying, you're a co-heir. I want to be considerate with you and loving just as God has valued you as much as his own blood. So this relationship of loving and respecting, if you follow that, where are the arguments going to come in? Uh, it's much easier to see how God has designed that husband and wife live as one and not because they have to, but because they have love from him. All right, uh, so now we have instructions for all believers. That's coming next. Let's see if we can wrap up this section. So we have seven commands for all believers. So this would apply to husbands, wives, everyone. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, and for this that you may inherit a blessing. So we got seven commands. How do they all relate to getting along with fellow believers? He's already addressed the the unbelieving world and how you're going to deal with suffering and get along. I believe here he's really focusing on the body of believers. I know it means the same, but I like the NIV live in harmony with one another. Okay. I think that just says it better than be like-minded. Sure. You know, live in harmony. I think the next part of our harmony versus like-minded is you think about harmony, they're not, think musically, harmony is not the same note. Uh, but they still work together. Right. Yeah. You're, you're maybe not agreeing on the exact same things, but you're working together. Yeah. So definitely brings out a, a clear picture. It's like alto, sopranos, bass, and tenors. You know, They all sound different by themselves, but all together they sure harmonize. And how do we produce that harmony? Sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> Sympathetic, love, compassion, humility. Um, how can you work together with someone if you're not humble or loving and compassionate to their situation? And what happens when there's a little bit of dissonance that comes in that doesn't belong? How do you deal with it? Notice it's once again dealing with disunity. Verse 9, don't pay back evil for evil or insult for evil. Evil for evil. So if, if someone does come and rub you the wrong way, still try to harmonize with them, Right? Or just make it a dissonant chord that sounds like it belongs, right? <coughs> to accomplish a purpose. And then resolve it when you want to resolve it. Describe the calling and inheritance which motivates us to maintain peace with fellow believers. He says, To this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. So what is our calling and inheritance that causes us to want to be in harmony with fellow believers? Sure, calling to the, the same body of believers into faith under Christ. So we were called to be one with God and called to inherit in faith. Think of the inheritance Peter's described. 
together as co-heirs, all of us, not just husbands and wives, but all of us are co-heirs. When you get in an argument with someone about the color of the carpet and you're, or you're angry at them over some issue that can be resolved, forgiven, and grace, think about how you'll be standing in heaven with them someday. You have an inheritance along with them, right? So that definitely should motivate us to be one, knowing that we will all as one live together forever. How can we not get along for five minutes now? When we're going we're gonna to need to get along forever, and we will because of God's love. Yeah, almost would end any argument, wouldn't it, when you think of it that way? Right. It makes everything seem so insignificant. Wait a second. You're joining with me in the inheritance in heaven. Why are we fighting about you know, how we divide up our family's inheritance right now? All right, final section. Peter has now quoted or alluded to the Old Testament around a dozen times. So sometimes directly quoting it, we see quite a bit. Your Bible often indent that. But even just alluding it to it, like he mentioned Sarah and so forth, uh, 12 times already. Here he's quoting from Psalm 34. Uh, just take a look at that psalm. Uh, maybe some of you remember this one from when we did our study in the psalm uh, a year or two ago. If you look at what the psalm says, it's all about this topic. And many of the same topics that Peter brings up here. So I'm going to read that from what, what Peter says. Peter quotes from Psalm 34 and verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know what's a neat development in that psalm? It's pretty unique to Psalm 34, I think. If any of you have opened up to it in the Old Testament, you'll see even more. And Peter has alluded to it earlier in his letter. Notice the eyes, ears, mouth, lips, face, hear, see, all the senses coming in to play. This is a, a psalm that really brings in the senses about you know, what am I going to do with my eyes? Am I going to use them to be in harmony with God and with others? Am I, am I going to use my lips to build up harmony and peace and to praise my God? Am I going to use my ears to listen to others and to listen to my God? He even gets uh, earlier in the psalm, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Didn't Peter say that earlier, right? So you kind of see Peter is almost like got Psalm 34 in his mind as he's writing his letter, it would appear. And that the topics that are found in Psalm 34, I found that kind of interesting uh, that Peter's doing that. And then he brings up Psalm 34 here. When would you find 1 Peter 3.12 to be especially helpful? We'll close with that verse. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. Notice that ties in with husbands, right? Um, righteous through faith. Isn't that a comfort to know you have access to God's throne? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So verse 12 and verse 7 kind of connect. But this is speaking to all of us. When would you find verse 12 to be especially helpful? Yeah. I think uh, for me, when we look at the world today and all the you know, recent events um, with mass shootings and things like that and all the evil that we see around us, this is a really good verse. Um, for comfort. Yeah. God, God sees and God hears. And those people that think they're getting away with all this evil, 
God doesn't, he turns away from them. His, his face, which is his, his blessing and his favor, is turned away from them. So it certainly is a comfort for us as we face troubles. And this is a promise of grace, right? Uh, to know, to, to ward off discouragement, to know that God is watching and God is listening even as you face uh, trouble. Yeah. I, I see it so often or hear it so often, you know, when you try to share your faith with somebody and, and, and so often people are saying, yeah, well, you know, I don't really believe that. If you want to believe that, that's fine. But they get the attitude like, as long as I don't believe it, it doesn't really exist. So I don't have to worry about it. They seem to think that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, that I, God does not know. God does if, not if, see. Yeah, if, if I complete ignorance later, <laughs> where ignorance is no excuse. Yeah. But so definitely a helpful picture to keep in mind that God is paying attention and He is real, whether people say it or not. And that uh, verse twelve reminds me of uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." Jimmy Stewart gets in all that trouble, and then at the last day he's praying. Oh God, I'm you know at the bridge. I'm not a praying man, but if you'll help me this time, <laughs> right? Well, God wouldn't hear if that's not done through the righteous through faith. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I put a side note in the bottom left-hand column there. Seek peace and pursue it. Uh, Peter drags in our senses in Psalm 34. You got touch, taste, sound, hunger, sight. Uh, all those things, and then you have ears, eyes, lips, face. Uh, I just encourage you, try meditating on Psalm 34 and use those pictures. And then finally, recall how Christ sought peace for you with his whole being. Uh, he is your righteousness with his eyes, ears, senses, everything. His whole being was to bring you that peace and that righteousness. And he is seated on his throne. He is listening in grace to your prayers because he lived and died for you. Closing thoughts before we conclude our, our study for today. Thanks for delving into these 12 verses, half of chapter 3. We're going to pick up next time with the second half of chapter 3. And we're going to get, now Now that we've talked about living in harmony with fellow Christians, we're going to get back to living in the, the unbelieving world and also witnessing to that unbelieving world. So how do you confess the crucified and risen Christ? And Peter will get into the means of grace, uh, both the gospel and word, and in sacrament. Let's say a, a concluding prayer then. Lord, we thank you for the, the great gift you have given in creating us male and female. Help us not to view beauty or our life together in the way the world does, but to humbly follow your good direction, to see what, what is true beauty, that it consists of something unfading, which is following with your direction and your word. Help husbands and wives to submit, love, respect, and be considerate with one another. Help us in our, our own lives to live in harmony with fellow believers around us, as we do not pay back evil for evil, but seek peace and pursue it. Keep our eyes on Christ, so that with our whole being, we can follow him humbly and wholeheartedly, praising you, our Savior God. We thank you for graciously hearing our prayers and for being attentive to our lives. We know we don't deserve this, but you have done this for us. Build us up in Christ. Now that we have tasted, you are good. Amen.